Hello, and welcome to The X Degree, a podcast where we delve deep into the abyss of the internet to find strange, convoluted, and seemingly impossible connections between two random things. My name is Eric Stafford. Today, we will be looking at a connection between the jackalope, a mythical creature that is a cross between a rabbit and a buck, and the early 1900s killer Mary Mountain, also known as Typhoid Mary. Again, a couple of F-bombs in here, heads up. They are warranted, I I promise. All throughout the world in history, there were always stories of hidden beasts and fantastical creatures that one had just seen by a passing glance. It was like Bigfoot or the Loch Ness Monster. But other than these creatures that have their own, honestly, cult followings at this point, there have been a ton of smaller, lesser-known ones. Take the Agripelter, a beast that supposedly amused itself by hurling twigs at unsuspecting passerby, or the Glaucus, a half-panther, half-bear, half-lion creature, or the Teakettler, a small creature that mimicked the sound of a tea kettle. But standing tall and proud among these, at least in my eyes, is the wily jackalope, a portmanteau of a jackrabbit with antelope horns, or in many modern iterations, the antlers of a deer. The first mounted bust of a jackalope can be traced to the 1930s in Douglas, Wyoming, when Douglas Herrick and his brother sold a taxidermied jackalope to a local hotel. Now, the myth of the jackalope has been around a lot longer than the 1930s, in German-speaking countries, the myth of Rasselbach has similar themes to Jackalope stories, seen out of the corner of the eye, only for a second, mostly near logging camps. The Lepus cornatus, or horned hare, was a theorized creature in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries around Europe. The Almirage was a 13th century mythical creature said to live on an island in the Indian Ocean that was described as a rabbit with a large unicorn-like horn. According to legend, The Almirage was given to Alexander the Great as a gift from the inhabitants of the island after he slew a dragon. A theory to the origin of these jackalope stories is an infection of the shop papillomavirus, which has been observed to cause thorny and horny protrusions in corntail rabbits. But nowadays, our little friend is a folk icon. It's the mascot of a number of breweries, the Santa Fe University Art and Designs magazine, mine and my friend's fantasy football team, and has been the center of a legislative debate in Wyoming. In 2005, State Senator Dave Edwards proposed that the legislature of Wyoming named the jackalope as the state's official mythological creature. The bill passed in the House by a 45-12 to vote, but the Senate let the bill die. Following Senator Edwards' passing in 2013, the bill was reintroduced, where it again died in the Senate, and it failed for a third time in 2015. Some people just don't have a healthy sense of humor in my mind. Now let's stay in the least populated state in the U.S., In 2019, less than 600,000 people were estimated to live in Wyoming, but it may be one of the most beautiful places on earth to me. Wide tracts of land, no people around, towering mountains, a constant feeling that you don't belong out in nature's domain. Big sky country was always a strange term to me until I visited the Grand Tetons. Yellowstone and Grand Teton National Parks take up about half of the land in Wyoming, along with two national recreation areas, two national monuments, national forests, and a handful of other protected lands. There's a reason no, nothing's out there. It's protected land. And the remaining private land is very much do not trespass. But this much federal land in such a small population is kind of fascinating. Federal land is technically not part of an individual state, yet there are odd overlaps in legal jurisdiction and sovereignty. And I don't understand any of that. But in a post-Malcolm Gladwell surge in my appreciation for the website SSRN, I found one of the coolest academic papers I can say I've ever seen, 
And yes, I am a dweeb. The Social Science Research Network is a database of papers on the internet. And if you listen to the last two or three seasons of Revisionist History, you'll fall in love with it like I did. If you're the type of person that's into weird stuff like that and rambling like this. Anyway, when I was digging during my lunch break at a summer and internship a couple years ago, I found a paper titled The Perfect Crime by Brian C. Colt in the Georgetown Law Journal from 2005. In this paper, Colt looks at a strange anomaly in the jurisdiction of federal lands in conjunction with the visage clause of the Sixth Amendment. Yeah, yeah, me neither. What I can decipher is that within the vast swaths of Yellowstone National Park, there are little areas overhanging from Wyoming into Montana and Idaho. The little overhang into the other states, however, is under the judicial jurisdiction of the District of Wyoming because it was too much work when the states were being founded after the national park to rework the maps. So according to the federal court system, if you commit a crime in Yellowstone, you are subject to legal prosecution in the District of Wyoming. Okay, now hold on with me for a little bit longer. So Cult proposes a scenario that you go into the 50 square miles of Yellowstone that's in Idaho. There, you start to commit crimes. You make some moonshine, you poach some wildlife, you damage property, you kill someone, you are arrested. And because you are in Yellowstone, you fall under the Wyoming District Court and are sent to Cheyenne to await trial. But you know exactly what you are doing. You appeal to the jurisdiction of your crime, stating truthfully that you did the big bad in the state of Idaho. Therefore, by Article 3, Section 2 of the Constitution, quote, the trial of all crimes shall be by jury, and such trial shall be held in the state where the said crimes have been committed. So, if you're able to convince the right people who have no forethought, you then get sent back to stand trial in Idaho and Boise. But, the Sixth Amendment states that for a fair trial to take place, you are to be tried in a court with a jury made of people from the state and district from which the crime took place. So, you need at least 12 people to be jurors that are from the state of Idaho and the district of Wyoming. This is usually never an issue because districts almost always are contained within state borders. But you're a sneaky little criminal. So, let's go find 12 people who live in the 50 square mile area you committed the crime in. According to the 2000 census, you will find a grand total of zero people living there. And so, cult posits, you could be able to walk free. Now, legally, I should say this. Don't commit crimes especially on federal land, especially with the idea that you're going to get away with it, because you won't. The second half of Cult's paper is basically how the government could fill in the loophole and still try you. So don't, just don't do it. Please, just don't. But the reason I wanted to bring this up is because, one, it's a it's a cool idea. Two, it shows how weird the Wild West really still is. And three, we slip smoothly into Wyoming's neighbor where these imaginary crimes took place, Idaho. Now, I'm going to bring in my wild card and make a break from what you guys can actually follow online and through Wikipedia to make a personal connection. So, Idaho doesn't really seem like it has a lot, at least when I was a kid. It's got potatoes, Napoleon Dynamite, a college football team that plays on a blue field. That's all I had as a kid. But my college roommate, Nathan, who's hopefully listening to this, is from Idaho. In one of the coolest places ever, Ketchum, Idaho. It's tucked away in the Rockies and is mostly known for being home to Sun Valley. Sun Valley and Jackson Hole go back and forth in competition for the best-rated ski resorts in the U.S. And it's unbelievably beautiful. 
and for our foray into the obscure, Ketchum was the home of Ernest Hemingway and the site of his suicide in 1961. There are books and movies and YouTube documentaries all about that if you want to go into them, but we're here for the elk rack. Because Hemingway was such an American icon and suicide back then was incomprehensible, people wanted to know more and make wild press assumptions. One of the journalists who traveled to Ketchum to find the smoking gun that forced Hemingway to suicide, other than his, you know, decades of PTSD and alcoholism, was Hunter S. Thompson. According to his report in the National Observer in 1964, Thompson reportedly stole a pair of elk antlers from Hemingway's home while he was reporting this story. Hunter S. Thompson is recognized now as the flag bearer of what's called gonzo journalism, a form of reporting that uses the subjective first-person point of view of the reporter and focuses less on the polished, clean, verified writing style that most publications use, and he uses more of like a raw, sarcastic, exaggerated story. With this mindset, Thompson jumped into the spotlight in 1964 for his novel Hell's Angels, where he spent a year living with the biker gang in the Haight-Ashbury area of San Francisco that culminated in a summer holiday ride up into the Sierra Nevadas for a party that sparked a national panic of biker gangs. After the book's meteoric rise, Thompson swung his focus towards the hippie culture of the Bay, the U.S. political system, and the Kentucky Derby. In 1971, Thompson was tasked with writing a piece for Rolling Stone magazine about the killing of Ruben Salazar, a Mexican-American journalist, by L.A. County sheriffs during a protest of the Vietnam War. Thompson and one of his sources, attorney Oscar Zeta Costa, decided to travel to Las Vegas to escape the tension of L.A. and finish the piece. What occurred on that trip became Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, a two-part article in Rolling Stone, that became a lightning rod for the loss of the counterculture movement and sealed Thompson's fate of being in the limelight. Thompson continued his career being an irreverent and anti-establishment symbol until his death in 2005. And in one last amazing display, his remains were fired out of a cannon atop of a 153-foot-tall monument of a red fist clutching a peyote flower. That was his logo when he was running for sheriff of Pitkin County, Colorado in 1970. The funeral was entirely financed by Johnny Depp, and was attended by Senators John Kerry and George McGovern, Charlie Rose, Jack Nicholson, Bill Murray, and a ton more people. But now we're going to follow Rolling Stone magazine down this jackalope hole. It was founded in 1967 as a foray into music culture that at the beginning focused on counterculture and politics, later moving into more popular subjects for investigative journalism. In recent years, the magazine came under heat by supposedly publishing a story on rape cases at the University of Virginia that were not fully researched. Now, at least for me, the magazine is mostly movie news and pop culture references, but I, I, I don't subscribe, I don't really look. But in the myriads of great culture pieces, let's pull one out from 1997 on the party culture at Florida State University. In this serial piece, they focus on a sixth-year undergraduate named Bert Kreischer. Kreischer was named by the article as the, quote, top partier at the number one party school in the country. In the weird world of the entertainment industry, director Oliver Stone optioned the story of Kreischer's life, but later released the rights, which were picked up by the National Lampoon and later made into the movie Van Wilder. Kreischer is now a stand-up comedian known for telling insane stories and not wearing a shirt on stage. He is most famous for telling a story of how on a study abroad trip in Russia, he became best friends with a Russian gang, then robbed a passenger train with all of his classmates on it, and got the nickname by the gangsters, The Machine. 
Now, while that story is pretty damn funny, I want to pull up another one of his stories he told on the Comedy Central show, This Is Not Happening, previously hosted by Ari Shafir, titled Flying Dildos. The stories of Kreischer and his friends in Amsterdam in college getting high and heckling a sex show. And at the end, Ari Shafir asked Bert to finish the story that he was originally telling of while they were still high, he and his friends went into the Anne Frank house. Now, that would not ever be funny. But the premise of the story is that Kreischer didn't know the difference between Anne Frank and Helen Keller. So he's high in the Anne Frank house making Helen Keller jokes. And that's fucked up. Like 100% wrong in every possible way. But it is so damn funny. Especially if you've ever been to the Anne Frank house. It's the most sobering thing I've ever done apart from actually visiting a concentration camp. And all joking aside, I strongly believe that every person should visit a place like that, regardless of your heritage or your beliefs. Those will place the worst things humans are capable of in front of you, and you will never forget them. For me, one of the most powerful things in the Anne Frank house is after you walk through the living areas, you walk by a glass case holding mementos of the Nazi occupation of Amsterdam including a logbook of everyone shipped to concentration camps from the city, with the page open that contains Anne Frank's name. And what you realize is that she was just one name in a logbook of people shipped away in cattle cars to be murdered. At the end of the tour, a film plays on a continual loop called Reflections. In it, politicians, celebrities, and authors speak or read from their work inspired by the museum. And one of them is the author John Green, reading from his book A Fault in Our Stars, which takes place in part in Amsterdam. And the quote in the book is pretty much what I said about the big book. I, I swear I didn't steal that. That, I, that. You know what I mean? And while I have actually never read any of John Green's books yet, I am a massive fan of his other work. He and his brother Hank Green co-founded the YouTube channel Crash Course, which I think most people in my generation used more than once to help study for a subject in school. They have turned that venture and their joint YouTube channel, Vlog Brothers, into a media company called Complexly. They now make more educational YouTube channels such as SciShow, Sexplanations. They run a nonprofit charity that just a few months ago raised over $2 million in less than 48 hours for Partners in Health Sierra Leone. And they make podcasts, including my favorite that John makes, called The Anthropocene Reviewed. In it, John reviews different facets of the human-centered planet on a five-star scale. These reviews cover the act of Googling strangers, Hawaiian pizza, CNN, the idea of love at first sight, mortification. It's a beautiful exploration into life as a human and honestly, a huge inspiration for this podcast. The book adaptation of these essays is coming out on May 18th, 2021. And one episode focuses on the video game Tetris, in our transition, the seed potatoes of Leningrad. Now, I had never heard of that story, and if you want to, please listen to John's essay or do your own research for it. But it's the story of a team of botanists led by Nikolai Vavilov, who starved to death while preserving their collection of nearly 200,000 crop seeds during the Nazi siege of Leningrad from 1941 to 1944. The Siege of Leningrad is regarded as one of the deadliest and costliest sieges in history. It led to the death of nearly 1.5 million people and the displacement of nearly the same amount. 
It has been classified by some organizations as a genocide. And I know I started with a jackalope. Now I'm talking about the Holocaust in Leningrad. I'm sorry. Well, it's I, I, I can't make any more promises. But the siege of Leningrad wasn't just the Nazis. The Finnish army sieged the city in the northern border, recapturing the lands that the Soviets annexed as part of the Winter War two years earlier. In that war, the Soviets invaded Finland to secure a buffer zone away from Leningrad to protect the city. It was a surprisingly costly war, and as a result of the USSR's antagonism, they were removed from the League of Nations. Remember those guys? They were the first attempt at a global cooperative group that came about after World War I. They were like the Articles of Confederation in U.S. history. It's kind of a meh attempt that would hopefully be better flushed out in a later iteration. Mm -hmm. But honestly, the League of Nations tried their best. I mean, causing the complete collapse of the Weimar Republic in Germany and really doing nothing to stop the rise of Nazism, along with a kind of offhanded response to the atrocities of colonialism, they, they tried to do well. The, the UN might be doing a little bit better. I don't know. And while it isn't in existence anymore, the League of Nations set the stage for a lot of current worldwide entities. A branch of the League of Nations, the Health Committee, was the precursor to the World Health Organization, and they ha advocated and heavily promoted the widespread use of vaccinations, including the Bacillus Calmet Gurin vaccine, or BCG. The BCG vaccine is the one that protects against tuberculosis. Today, TB is kind of a secondary disease test in the developed world because most of us are rightfully vaccinated against it. It's kind of lost its severity in the developed world, but it's still a thing. TB is actually the number one cause of death from an infectious disease in the world. New infections occur in roughly 1% of the world population every year and result in approximately 1.5 million deaths per year. One quarter of the world's population is thought to have a latent TB infection, meaning at some point the bacteria causing the disease was in your body. So vaccinate your fucking kids. Now how I always heard and saw TB was in stories of people back from like the Middle Ages up until like the 1940s who had a nasty cough and direly looked into their white handkerchief now speckled with blood. There are some branches of the disease that affect other areas of the body, but most infections are in the lungs. And honestly, we still really don't have a good treatment for TB. The BCG vaccine has a potency of about 10 years, so booster shots are recommended, and screening is relatively simple. They place a small amount of bacterial proteins just under your skin. If the person has been exposed to the bacteria in the past, the bubble will remain, and you can do further testing. TB-positive patients will undergo antibiotic treatments for several months, which historically have varied success in destroying the bacteria, but honestly, it's better than what we used to have. For years, centuries actually, prior to the widespread use of antibiotics and vaccines, TB and many other diseases were managed by one major method, isolation and quarantine. Now, in the world of COVID-19, we have our own ideas of isolating and quarantining from infections, but the previous methods were a bit more severe. Take the name quarantine. It's derived from the Italian word quaranta, meaning 40. Ships arriving in Venice during the bubonic plague were forced to disembark on islands called lazarettos and remain in isolation for 40 days to allow the miasma to clear out. 40 was chosen for the biblical significance. Moses is 40 days on Mount Sinai, Jesus is 40 days in the desert, and his 40 days of life after resurrection. It also just happened to be longer than the incubation period for bubonic plague. 
And for how draconian the practices of it may seem, it had some efficacy. By isolating sick and infectious patients from the healthy population, you reduce the chance of the disease spreading while patients fight the disease. Now, this is usually done in a medical facility with state-of-the-art medical care and medications and machines designed to help the patients, but in the past, quarantine was usually a death sentence. A lot of these quarantine facilities followed in line with the Venetian lazarettos, placing the patients in facilities on islands, usually in sight of the cities the patients hailed or were going to. And one of these lazaretto-type islands is North Brother Island, just off the shore of New York and the East River. The TB ward was short-lived in the 1940s, but it was mainly used for a smallpox hospital from around the 1850s. But many other patients with infectious diseases were housed there, and one of these is our friend, the killer cook, Mary Mallon, also known as Typhoid Mary. Mary Mallon was an Irish domestic cook in New York who worked for a string of wealthy families that all contracted and many times died from then the poor man's disease, typhoid, which is caused by a bacteria that's usually found in poop that the person ingested. It was later discovered that Malin was an asymptomatic carrier of typhoid and infected the families accidentally when preparing uncooked dessert after not washing her hands. Malin gained most of her fame by outspokenly denouncing her part in the death of these families, escaping from detection, and killing more families until she was finally arrested. She was isolated on North Brother Island and died in 1938. Well, there it is. A dark and twisted path of stories and little side tangents, but that's one way you can connect the jackalope to Typhoid Mary. Thank you so much for listening. A huge thanks to Brian Colt's paper, The Perfect Crime, Nathan Niffin's Life Experiences of Living in Idaho, Comedy Central's show This Is Not Happening, the Anne Frank House for keeping the memories of those murdered by intolerance alive. John Green's body of work, including The Fault in Our Stars, Crash Course, and The Anthropocene Reviewed. My parents for vaccinating me. Wisecrack's video on the history of pandemics. And my favorite murders episode on Typhoid Mary that inspired this episode. And of course, the anthology of humanity that I hope aliens find, Wikipedia. If you want to see some photos of jackalopes, Hunter S. Thompson's funeral pyre, and public health warnings about Typhoid Mary, we're on Instagram at to the X degree. If you want to send ideas for new connections, because I can't come up with all of these on my own, you can DM me there, or you can send an email to xdegreepod at gmail.com. In tangent, I wish I went down, but didn't. If the jackalope is ever named the official mythical creature of Wyoming, it'll be joining the unicorn, which is the official symbol of Scotland. Legend goes that unicorns and lions are natural enemies, and in defiance to the British crown, whose symbol is the lion, the Scots took up the image of the unicorn. The official royal arms of the United Kingdom has a lion and a unicorn on either side of it. Stay safe out there. <laughs>